Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Of course, I'm happy to have all of you with us as we finish yet another week uh, here on the show. First of all, I want to thank Don Lowry for filling in for me yesterday. Of course, she did a terrific job hosting the show, which is no surprise to anyone. But for me personally, best of all, was it gave me a chance on Yom Kippur to go through, I don't even know the list, of sins and misdeeds and shortcomings over the last year that I had to atone for. And uh, I got some of that done, thank goodness, but I really do appreciate that Donna was here to fill in for me. You know, I, I, I often say on this show that one of the best things about getting to host Political Rewind is I get a ringside seat to hear some of the smartest people out there talk, analyze politics. And I got to tell you, Today is a great example of that. We have an all-star Emory University panel uh, today, starting with uh, Professor Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Hey, how are you, Andra? Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for being here with us uh, for the show today. Alan Abramowitz is with us as well, Professor Abramowitz. Abramowitz, now you just told me, Alan, <laughs> an emeritus professor uh, as of September 1st, which means you're sort of semi-retired. Is that right? Uh, kind of. <laughs> Full time. <laughs> trying, to, trying to keep busy. Trying to keep busy. Um, but, yeah, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. I, I um, You said to me before the show that you're going to teach a class on uh, the 2022 elections in the spring, the one mm -hmm. class you will continue to teach while you do your political science research and writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, boy, that would be a class to audit, to hear your uh, lectures on what's happening in the 2022 election cycle. So, But anyhow, congratulations on well, the new you. status at Emory. Thanks. Um, we're also joined. Uh, we're also joined by Professor Fred Smith, Professor of Constitutional Law at Emory. Um, Fred, it's a pleasure to have you here today. We're going to talk about some matters that involve constitutional law on the show as we move forward today. So it's a real treat to have you. How are you doing? Wonderful. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Let's get started. Um, I don't think anyone uh, was surprised. After Texas passed its um, abortion law, uh, the, and after the Supreme Court refused to intervene to stop the law from taking effect, I think many people, including panelists on this show, said that it was only a matter of time before Georgia, someone uh, in the Republican uh, state legislative delegation introduced a similar measure here. And Andre Gillespie, that's now happened. Butch Miller... Senator Miller, a Republican, uh, announced yesterday he was going to essentially uh, introduce a bill very much like the Texas bill, which, of course, kind of deputizes ordinary citizens to be able to um, take action against anyone who facilitates an abortion. Not, not the woman who seeks the abortion, but the Lyft driver, uh, the doctor, anyone else who in any way is seen as facilitating the abortion if it takes place under the Texas law after, after six weeks, the so-called fetal heartbeat, which is a big question, too. So, Andra, uh, comment on the fact we're now looking at that coming up in the legislature here. Um, well, I mean, you know, the one thing that's different from the last time that I was on the show with Greg Bluestein was, you know, there hadn't been any indication that there was going to be a legislator who was going to be willing to sponsor this bill. Now it's here. I don't think anybody is surprised by this. Um, I think that uh, a, a pro-life activists were clearly looking to craft this law in a way that it could diffuse across the country in states where uh, they were they were going to be sort of friendly to pro-life measures. And, you know, the bill was deliberately written sort of in concert, not just with legislators, but, you know, also with lobbyists and lawyers to try to sort of circumvent the legal process to try to prevent states from really being able 
to have standing in this case. So I can't say that, you know, we were surprised. It was, uh, I'm surprised by this. It was only a matter of time. I think the big question is now that it's being introduced, you know, will the rest of, 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 of the Republicans of the state legislature go along with this? So just because it's being introduced doesn't necessarily mean that it, it has a clear path to passing the legislature and getting signed into law by Governor Kelly. Alan, of course, we should also point out that Butch Miller is a candidate in what appears to be a pretty hotly contested GOP primary for lieutenant uh, governor. And mm-hmm. he's up against uh, a candidate who's got the, uh, the endorsement of Donald Trump. So Butch Miller, mm-hmm. he may be completely sincere in his efforts to try to stop abortion in Georgia. Nevertheless, it's also a, a way to uh, help him stand out in a, in a, in a tough primary. Absolutely. Um, I think we're seeing this, this sort of um, scenario play out in, in many races on a number of issues uh, around the country where we're seeing um, candidates seeking Republican nominations um, are, uh, are pushing uh, policies that are designed to appeal to the very Trumpified base of the Republican Party right now. And this is a very good example of it. The big question here, I think, as Andre suggested, is whether, you know, will, will the Republican leadership in, in, in the House and in the state House and Senate uh, allow this to go forward? Uh, and how does the governor feel about it? Because uh, I don't think this is the sort of thing that they want to see front, front and center uh, as we head into the midterm election year. I mean, this is this is something that I think this is a very extreme bill likely eventually to be ruled unconstitutional, but we'll see about that. Um, and, and I, you know, it probably p- would, would be quite unpopular even in Georgia. So I, I don't think they necessarily would want to see this go forward. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about just that, what we think might happen in the legislature with Republican leaders. But, but first, um, Fred, uh, I think the court date, the federal appeals court, takes up the Georgia six-week abortion law uh, at the end of next week. It's been stayed, um, and and the the uh, federal judge who stayed it uh, essentially said it's in it's contrary to to Roe v. Wade to to constitution to to uh, what the Supreme Court has already ruled on abortion. But so let's be clear about something. Help us one more time with this. The, the Texas law, what, here's what, well, let me just say what, what Miller said, which Miller said. He said, we have, meaning Georgia, one of the strongest pro-life laws in the nation, but it's not in effect because of the courts. It's not currently saving the lives it was intended to save. If the Texas model allows us to move forward with a pro-life law, I'll work to get it done. So, so Fred, the Texas law essentially, circum- it, it, it takes the law out of the hands of state officials, the legislature, the governor's office, and because it puts it in the hands of individuals, it's, it, it may not be entirely uh, uh, free from court challenge, but it's close to that, isn't it, Fred? Yeah, so in Georgia, we have, the, we have a six-week law, um, but as you note, it's been uh, declared unconstitutional under well-established precedents and uh, and when I say well-established precedents, I mean the types of precedents that if someone were taking the bar exam um, and they encountered this scenario uh, and they were to say that this law were constitutional, then that would be the wrong answer. Uh, it's, it's not in a gray area. Um, the Georgia law, the six-week law, um, is uh, unconstitutional under well-established precedents, um, both Roe v. Wade and, and more recently from the 1990s. Casey, um, the the Texas law does introduce this new element, right? Which is um, who can uh, sue, um, and uh, and and so that's the kind of the question that's in front of the Georgia legislature potentially uh, under this upcoming um, session. Um, what's really interesting about that is to think about what it might mean um, if this becomes the norm. Might, what it might mean for future laws. Um, so you can imagine under the Second Amendment that, uh, that there might be states that, if, if this passes muster, there could be states that pass laws that say um, any victim of gun violence um, can uh, sue the, um, the gun manufacturer 
um, or uh, it could mean that uh, any time that under the Sixth Amendment, which among other things guarantees a, a right to uh, counsel, um, that, uh, that any time there's anyone who uh, experienced something that they thought was, indeficient, that was, uh, was insufficient counsel and deficient counsel, um, that they might be able to see. Um, it, 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 it's really, it's, it, it really opens um, this remarkable Pandora's box. Um, and I think upon reflection, um, we're probably not going to go down that road, um, but, um, but here we are in the meantime. Well, let me, Fred, but one point to make, the Georgia law will be back in the federal court soon, but the Mississippi abortion law will be in front of the United States Supreme Court in October, and that law was specifically designed to uh, argue against the precedent set first by Roe and, and then more limiting, nevertheless, Casey, both of which um, establish, well, Casey establishing viability, um, whereas the six-week law has nothing to do with viability. So the U.S. Supreme Court will get a chance to look at whether those precedents will mm-hmm. stand up, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the six-week law is just, in my view, under current precedent, absolutely out of bounds. Um, the Mississippi law um, does introduce uh, another set of questions. Um, and uh, what current precedent says is that uh, when women have... Well, every American, uh, I don't want to limit it to women because it really is about just as a, it should be a person in this country with bodily integrity, um, that the government can't force you to carry a child to term. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there's a compelling government interest in uh, potential life. Uh, and so what these precedents do is balance that, and they balance that in terms of viability. Um, that before viability, before that is, that is before the potential life um, is such that um, it could live in the world um, if it were outside of this other human being. Um, before that, the government can't intervene, and after that, the government can. So that's um, that, that, that's where the current precedents are, um, and we'll see what happens with the Mississippi law. So, 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 Andra, and then Alan. Um, Alan, Andra made a made an important point. Will the Georgia Republicans who control the legislature really want to support this law? Um, it, and it may be a step too far as they approach uh, the primaries and then the general election next year. On the other hand, Andra, um, in the session in which they did pass this six weeks law. It started with neither David Ralston, the speaker, nor Governor Kemp wanting a statute that went as far as what they finally passed. And during the course of the session, Andra, you, we all watched uh, it play out that pressure from the right pushed those who wanted to be more cautious to adopt this, this very uh, restrictive law, yes? Well, yes. And, you know, the other thing to kind of, you know, keep in mind was what the what the aftermath was and then thinking about what the context is. So the context that you would still have a far right that would push something that is extremely conservative is still there, very present. Obviously, Bush Miller is capitalizing on it, as Allen has, has suggested, and he's kind of signaling what he would do as, as lieutenant governor and as, as president of the Senate um, in that particular capacity. But... There is this case in Mississippi that will be um, decided, uh, you know, by the Supreme Court, and we know, you know, by this time next year, by you know, the early summer, sort of like what the court's position is likely on that. And then second, people remember what the backlash was against the Georgia law. So you had businesses that were threatening boycotts, in particular the motion picture industry, where you had stars lining up and people threatening to pull uh, film projects out of the state. Um, so I think what they, uh, you know, and, and granted, we've gone through some of those boycotts with respect to voting um, since then. And so the stance on that probably is a little bit different and people are, are willing to play a game of chicken with each other, perhaps in ways that they weren't a few years ago. But these things are still on the table and there will still be people who might just want to let the judicial process play itself out with respect to the Mississippi case before acting. Um, and there will be those who will think that this has just gone too far. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think one of the implications of what just happened 
with the Texas law when the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, on a five to four vote, uh, refused to uh, toss that law out, basically said, oh, we, the majority said, well, we, they're too, it's too complicated. You know, we can't take, we can't consider that right now. I mean, that suggests to me that there may well be um, now uh, a majority on the court who are prepared uh, when the Mississippi case is decided next year uh, to either uh, uh, overturn Roe outright or if not overturn it outright, at least uh, uh, essentially gut the protections that are currently uh, uh, provided. So, uh, so we're yeah. heading oh, into it, and that would that would be uh, uh, create, and that would that would move the issue of abortion front and center in the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, and, and I think that's something that not all Republicans uh, would like to see happen, um, because this pro-life position that they're taking is an overturning Roe v. Wade is not popular. Uh, a majority of Americans consistently um, support keeping the basic provisions of, of, of Roe v. Wade in, in polling, and that's true in Georgia as well as across the country. So, you know, and, and that's why I think Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, I think has been reluctant to go down that road. Um, I think he sees kind of protecting the Republican Party from itself uh, and its worst instincts as part of his mission. But he may not be able to do it anymore with the with the uh, three Trump appointees now on the court. So, Alan, uh, while the ball's in your court, let, or, let me let me just uh, ask you about the Tom Edsel article in The New York Times this week. Tom Edsel writes a weekly column for The New York Times. He's a very thoughtful analyst of politics. Um, <clears throat> and he quotes you extensively. In, in his piece this week, um, when I read it, I was glad to see you mentioned so often in it. Um, Edsel's contention is that as recently as 1984, abortion was not a deeply partisan issue. And then you right. support that contention <clears throat> by pointing out that it, 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 back in 1984, 40% of Democrats were essentially called themselves pro-life, anti-abortion. 39% said they were pro-choice, while something like 33% of Republicans in those days were pro-choice, 45% were pro-life, the rest were in the middle. So this has changed dramatically in right. just the last 35-plus years. Right. So now there's a big partisan divide in, in between the in, in opinions on the issue of abortion. Uh, Democrats now have shifted where, to where the overwhelming majority of Democrats and, and even, even more so among strong Democrats um, uh, favor um, abortion rights. Uh, and among Republicans, we've seen a swing to, in, in the opposite direction. But this is part and parcel of, the, of a larger shift that we've seen in American politics over this same time period, where we've seen a growing partisan divide on a whole range of issues so that the parties are far more divided now. And I'm talking about the base of the parties, not, not just the leadership here. The parties are very divided on a whole range of issues, social welfare issues, cultural issues, immigration, gun control, uh, climate change. I mean, you name it, and Democrats and Republicans are deeply divided. And interestingly, there's a very, very strong relationship between attitudes on all of these issues, among white voters at least, and racial attitudes. Um, so all these issues have become sort of in some ways racialized, which is a very interesting uh, and important development, I think, and, and really just deepens the, the polarization that we see in American politics. I, yeah, I want to get both you, Fred, and you, Andre, into this conversation. Let me tell you, uh, say quickly, uh, to amplify what Alan's talking about, here's what Edsel, Edsel points out, that in the early 80s, uh, conservative leaders like Richard Vigory, Phyllis Schlafly, Jerry Falwell Sr., most of their uh, focus was on anti-civil rights uh, issues. They, they opposed the civil rights movement, but they recognized that wasn't enough to build their base around, and so <coughs> they seized upon abortion. And, and here's what Edsel writes. He says, whites who score high on measures of racial resentment and racial grievance are far more likely to support strict limits on abortion than whites who sco mm -hmm. score low on these measures. So Fred and then Andra, 
uh, talk about what Alan is, is pointing out here, that link between uh, white resentment and, uh, and, and their concerns about African-Americans. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I have to confess that on the political uh, science measures, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm less informed. Um, and so I, I don't have a lot of thoughts about um, that particular link or, uh, or why uh, it may exist, except to say that, um, that it's quite interesting. Um, so I'm, I could talk, when it comes well, to this particular issue, I can talk about the constitutional law um, and, and what it, and, and the current state of the law, but I can't unfortunately talk mm-hmm. about uh, that. No, I, I get that. Andra, weigh in. Well, I mean, so to, to build on, on, on what Alan has said, it's important to keep in mind that in particular, whites who are going to shift from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party were in the middle of that realignment in 1984. So, um, you know, realignments don't happen overnight um, as much as we like to think that they did. Um, as much as we like to think that they do, like the whole idea that all of a sudden working class white people just started voting Republican in 2016 is just not borne out by the data. And this is also happening during this time period. So as abortion is becoming salient, it's being used to draw some people over from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. They're sorting ideologically so that their conservatism is now matching the party that is viewed as, as being more conservative. A book that I would recommend that I actually think provides a really interesting perspective on what these overlaps look like is this book by uh, two scholars at the University of Arkansas, Todd Shields um, and Angie Maxwell. Um, and it's called The Long uh, Southern Strategy. And so they look at this and they document this change over time. And, and what they find using survey data is that if we were going to think about those who are racially resentful, those who support traditional gender norms, and so being pro-life might fall under this particular domain, and those who support white Christian nationalism. You can think about them as a Venn diagram where they're going to come together and there's going to be a lot of overlap between the three camps, but what they are going to find is that there are people whose views are independent, so they might not actually fall into all three of those camps. They may fall into one or two of those camps, and so that this was actually sort of intentionally done to appeal to whatever was going to sort of, you know, activate uh, your uh, partisanship, your identification to try to pull you over uh, to the Republican side, to the more conservative end of the spectrum. And so I I just think it's a really insightful way of of thinking about about these issues. Well, Alan, I want to point out that I, I think I'm correct in saying Jimmy Carter was a victim in some ways of a shift in terms of how evangelicals and the, and the Christian leaders of evangelical movements, the conservatives, mm-hmm. uh, shifted into an anti-abortion stance. In 1976, Carter had a lot of support from the evangelical leadership. Mm-hmm. By 1980, when those conservative Christian leaders we mentioned earlier started taking abortion on as a big issue, the shift uh, in fact, hurt Carter in his reelection effort. I think I'm right in in saying that. Uh, yes, but I think there, there were a lot of things that hurt Carter in his reelection effort. Well, sure, um, sure. And and uh, uh, but certainly he was kind of got caught or sort of caught up in this shift. I mean, in 1976, he don't he carried ten of the eleven states of the old Confederacy. The only one he did not carry is the one that is now trending Democratic, and that's Virginia. He carried every other southern state, um, but 19, by 1980, uh, of course, he held on to only a few of them, including Georgia, but uh, against Ronald Reagan, uh, with the country in a recession and with you know the Iran hostage crisis. But also, yes, there was a shift. But what I wanted to point out is that the other side of this shift uh, of this growing repu- support for the Republican Party uh, on the part of evangelicals uh, and religious conservatives. Uh, and, and racial conservatives has been a swing in the opposite direction among college-educated white voters. Um, so we've seen this now, this growing divide along educational lines among white voters. It's kind of a, an inversion of the traditional class divide, uh, where it used to be that uh, white working-class voters, meaning those without college degrees, the large majority back then, were... Uh, a very democratic voting bloc. They were kind of the largest component of, of the FDR New Deal coalition. Uh, and white college degrees, which were then a very small group, tended to be very Republican. Over time, that has shifted, especially in the last 20 years or so. And in 2020, Donald Trump 
really added fuel to the fire, you might say. I mean, his, yeah. his campaigns and presidency really reinforced this division. Uh, he appealed very strongly to these white and you know, built his whole strategy of winning reelection on appealing to white working class voters and really hammering on these these, these racial and, and cultural issues. And it failed, um, but it came pretty close to succeeding. Uh, um, Fred, I want to ask you a quick question, but but before I do, let me point out that Randall Balmer, the Dartmouth uh, professor, uh, wrote a book on what I was talking about called Redeemer, the Life of Jimmy Carter. He's been on the show several times and talked about that, how that shift of the evangelical movement away from Carter uh, had an impact on uh, his support among uh, conservative Christians. But it's a really powerful book. Um, Fred, let me let me ask you this uh, before we have to get to a break. Yesterday, Clarence Thomas, uh, a couple weeks ago, Amy Coney Barrett, um, and, and I think at least one more justice, so I don't remember, actually, you'll, you'll remind me, suddenly are saying, hey, stop thinking of us on the court as being <laughs> a political first and foremost. We're not junior politicians, is, is the way one of them put it. It's clear, Fred, that as they approach a case like Mississippi and others which are so highly charged right now, that the justices are really feeling uh, a certain pressure and a backlash from the American people. You were a clerk for Sonia Sotomayor, so you understand a, a lot of the workings of the court. Tell us what you think about these justices suddenly coming forward and saying, we're not being political. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is that in terms of my own experience, um, the justices were doing their best to interpret the law as they understood it. Um, and, and when I walked away from the court, I was, uh, that, that was one of the things that I was most um, uh, impressed by. And by impressed, I mean it left an impression on me. I'm not like mm-hmm. in awe of, but, um, but it left an impression on me. That, um, that when I left, uh, I was like, oh, uh, wow, these folks, um, they really are just, doing their best to understand the law. And at that particular time, what I also left thinking um, is they all had deep respect um, for each other's integrity and each other's intellect. Um, and I, I, can't, I, I, I can't remark on what the state of affairs is today, um, but I can say that that's what it was when I, when I left, and I can understand why it is the case that they want to make that clear um, if, if that is still true, why they want to make, make clear um, that that is the state of affairs today. Um, more, more broadly, though, they are uh, intervening um, with respect to um, settled social issues. Um, and uh, and just the reality is um, that I think the court has to um, be thoughtful um, both about um, what the state of the law is and also about what when, when they act, um, what the right role for a court is um, uh, vis-a-vis um, politically accountable uh, branches. Um, and I think they're struggling uh, in some respect um, with that. Um, to the extent that they're speaking publicly, um, they're, they're struggling with what that particular balance, in fact, is. All right, let me do this. Um, thank you for a great uh, first segment conversation, all of you. I've got to get to our first break of the show right now, but we'll have a lot more when we come back. <music> Professor Fred Smith, Professor Andrew Gillespie, Professor Emeritus Al Nabramowitz, our all-star panel from Emory University uh, today. Uh, Alan, let me start with you on this one. Um, so two things about uh, uh, Governor Kemp and the pandemic. Uh, number one is the other day he accused uh, the Decatur school system of violating mm-hmm. his executive order by requiring the, the, the school system said we require now uh, vaccines for our staff and teachers. The governor said that's a violation of his executive order. He hasn't said what kind of action he might take against them at, at all. But he has continued his messaging against President Biden, and it's gotten more strident this week. Greg Bluestein reports that at a, a rally for uh, conservatives, I think Heritage 
uh, uh, put it on. Um, he said this, in warning about the vaccine mandate from the president, quote, people are going to revolt. Government is only as good as what people can withstand. And if you try to do more than that, you have an uprising or a mutiny. We understand political rhetoric is political rhetoric. We know he's running for re-election. But how does this inflame uh, those who are already uh, angry enough at the federal government, at President Biden and Democrats? And how troubling is this kind of language? Well, I think it's very troubling. This is very divisive language. Um, and this is going to make it more difficult, I think, to persuade uh, the unvaccinated uh, uh, share of the population here in Georgia, who are, who are overwhelmingly Republicans at this point, uh, to uh, at least a very large share are, uh, you know, to get vaccinated. Um, it is reinforcing this uh, irrational division that exists in the state and in the country, uh, where we're seeing people divide on public questions along partisan and ideological lines. Uh, and uh, the problem for Governor Kemp, though, is that as he's uh, saying these things and attacking uh, uh, Biden and Democrats for pushing mandates uh, on vaccination and, 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 and masking, the state is experiencing this big surge uh, of, of infections and, and of people dying from this disease. Um, and I think that it's a very politically risky strategy. Uh, and what we were seeing, what we saw in California in, in, in the recall election, what we saw in Virginia last night in the gubernatorial debate uh, that took place is that Democrats, uh, in, at least in blue states and purple states uh, like Virginia, kind of purple leaning blue, uh, and Georgia, very purple now, are deciding that, you know, this is an issue that can help them. Uh, it's not only the right thing to do. Uh, but it also is actually an issue that could potentially help them uh, in the elections because they're looking at public opinion. They're looking at the fact that the large majority of the population now, or voters, are vaccinated. And the vaccinated majority, including some Republicans, are getting irritated increasingly at the unvaccinated. And by playing to the unvaccinated you know, part of the, of the electorate, I think that Republican leaders like Kemp are, are, are doing something that's, that's pretty risky. And we're seeing that in Florida as well, for example, where Governor DeSantis is, is increasingly unpopular and for result of pursuing this anti-vaccination, anti, or at least anti-mandate strategy. Andra? What I would add is that this demonstrates a lack of leadership. Um, Governor Kemp is in a position where he has the knowledge, he has the advisors, he has the science behind him that should suggest different a different tactic but because there are members of his constituency who don't want to do things he is going to try to cater and pander to that there are times when leadership actually calls for you to require people to do things that they don't want to do and to bring them along and to educate them and that's been i think the thing that has been so tragic about the COVID 19 pandemic this whole time is that there are people who have been in positions where they could have educated and brought people up but they've allowed people to wallow in the, in, in the mud and it's really unfortunate. And, 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 and the, the interesting thing about Governor Kemp is because he did take an unpopular stance, at least on calling the presidential election for Joe Biden, he feels a particular pressure to continue to pander in order to make up for that. And so by trying to play it both ways, and I'm using it this way, you know, in the hopes that, uh, you know, his listeners and supporters who are on this show would actually understand it, he's kind of like the Laodicean church in, in the book of Revelation. So uh, God tells the, uh, the Laodicean church, one of the uh, seven churches, um, at the end of the age that you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Um, and so this attempt to try to have it both ways, to not quite be Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, which you know, I'm very thankful for, but in an attempt to still try to pander and not actually demonstrate leadership might not have the same type of payoff that it has for you, even if it still works for these others. And from a normative perspective, it shouldn't work for the others because what they've done is just be really irresponsible and endanger people's lives and increase their infection and their death rate as a result of it. And that's what needs to be the focus here. Fred, um, Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr, who's up for re-election as well, um, have threatened 
to take legal action to try to stop uh, the federal mandate. Other Republican governors around the country doing the same thing. But it's very unclear, Fred, I turn to you for the constitutional perspective on this or for the legal perspective, as to whether they have much of a case. I think both OSHA um, has regulations in place that would protect the president against lawsuit. OSHA has the power to enforce law, uh, um, regulations that protect the workforce, that keep people healthy in the workforce. And, and I think there's another federal court ruling somewhere in the last 40 years that gives some power to the president on, and, on this. Am I correct? Um, mm-hmm. Even though I like, I like talking about law, the first thing I'll say is that um, uh, just for listeners, right, that 99% um, of the people in the United States who um, have died recently from COVID are um, are unvaccinated. So for those who have not yet received a vaccination, to the extent that you are listening and you are thinking about what to do, um, you know, take that into account um, that um, that being vaccinated um, protects against severe COVID um, and protects against death. Um, on the legal question, uh, yes, it is a it's a it's an extreme legal position uh, to say that uh, that the federal government doesn't have any uh, authority um, when it comes to um, to workplaces um, and to protecting people in the workplace. Um, so uh, what the president um, has done here uh, and what um, the, the various uh, federal agencies are doing here, um, they're not attempting to necessarily require every single American to get vaccinated. Um, instead, it's about the workplace. So the same thing we, you refer to OSHA, right? So, um, so the same thing that gives people the gives the federal government the authority when it comes to protecting people from uh, from being harmed more broadly um, in the workplace, um, that's the authority that the federal government is using here. And from a constitutional perspective, it comes from the Commerce Clause. So the, the, the Congress has the ability um, to regulate inter, interstate commerce, um, and they've delegated some of that authority uh, to various federal agencies, including um, the Department of Labor. Um, and uh, at least under the current state of the law, um, that is, it, it's relatively unremarkable um, that that particular agency is uh, is engaging here. Um, so um, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch how um, how Governor Kemp continues to walk this tightrope that you mentioned, Andra. You point out, thankfully, that he's not DeSantis, he's, he's not Abbott, and yet, as you also mentioned, he refuses to simply say to, he says to people, it's your choice. Yes, you should be vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. But you have the right to decide that for yourself. And, and I think that's what you refer to when you talk about the fact that he hasn't used, well, what I would say, he hasn't used the bully pulpit in the way that he could, Andra. Well, I mean, it's not just that he hasn't used the bully pulpit. If we were going to analogize this to parenting, Right. If your kid didn't want to eat your vegetables for like 10 years straight or if your kid thought that they shouldn't have a curfew, you'd be like, I don't care what you want. You have to go do this now. So in a practical (laughs) sense, I don't always want to wear my seatbelt. I don't want to always follow the speed limit. I don't want to pay my taxes, but I do them because I have to. It is a responsibility of citizenship. If people can sort of sit and rant and rave sooner or later, a leader has to say, this is silly. You make no sense. And if it really, if I really have to get in your face and be like, look, shut up, that's dumb, then that's what you have to do. And you have to be willing to take the temporary hit in your popularity in order to actually do what people elected you to do. And this is where the problem lies. People are so afraid of their constituents that they're not willing to be unpopular for, you know, decent periods of time or even risk losing elections, right? Because what they don't understand is that the upside of that is that so many people would stand up and applaud and support him if he actually just, you know, said things that, you know, reflected common sense and good science. 
Um, Alan, you already referred to the Gavin Newsom uh, recall election, which Newsom, of course, won over well. He won it by such a large margin that even Larry Elder, mm-hmm. the right-wing talk show host, who had already started laying the groundwork for claiming fraud in the early voting, uh, could had to back away from that. And the Republicans had to back away from it because the victory mm-hmm. was so overwhelming. So mm-hmm. with that in mind... Ron Brownstein had, I thought, a particularly uh, uh, good analysis of this in The Atlantic. He said the results suggest that both in California and nationally, Republicans who have centered their messaging on defending, quote, the rights and, quote, choices of the unvaccinated are playing to the short side of public opinion and potentially Mm -hmm. alienating many among the roughly three-fourths of American adults who have gotten the shot, which is exactly what you said. But Brownstein goes on to suggest that in California— Uh, Number one, he suggests that it's a message, as you pointed out, that people, politicians running for re-election better be more cautious about how they talk about vaccination if they want to win elections. But he also points out that um, it's one thing to be running a race in California where Democrats are a predominant force. It's another to be in Georgia where the election outcome is likely to be much, much closer and -hmm. charges of fraud are much more likely to uh, be taken seriously by the population here. Talk about that. Well, that's right. Um, I, I think you know, despite the fact that in, in the end, uh, the leading Republican candidate to replace Gavin Newsom uh, did concede the election, uh, where the margin was so overwhelming as something like 64% to 36% at this point, um, that the, the real question is what's going to happen uh, uh, in Virginia, what's going to happen this year, a more competitive state, what's going to happen next year in the, in the midterm elections in, the, in swing states and districts, uh, and are we going to see Republicans continue to follow the big lie and, and, and to push these claims of, uh, of, of voter fraud? Uh, and, and I'm worried that, 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 that this is likely to continue. We're already seeing here uh, you know, in Georgia, where there's a move afoot uh, or, or to begin, uh, they're, be, they're beginning this uh, process to potentially replace um, the chair of the Fulton County uh, Election Commission. And, and Brad Raffensperger was very critical of the, uh, uh, of the choice of Kathy Woolard um, to, chair, to chair that commission uh, because she's been associated with Democratic candidates in the past. You know, and uh, but I think this is laying the potentially at least laying the groundwork for an effort to, you know, put a more friendly, a Republican-friendly group in charge of running the elections. And and Fulton County, the largest county in the state of Georgia, a heavily Democratic county, and we may see this elsewhere as well, on on top of the uh, the law that was passed already, which which, uh, has made it more difficult uh, for people to to vote, uh, particularly in the big urban counties. Uh, that that are heavily democratic. So uh, it's already having an effect. Um, and uh, I think the big concern is how it will play out in, in the midterm elections in the swing states and districts next year. Andra, before I get to a break, um, I, I'm glad Alan mentioned the Kathy Woolard appointment as the, uh, or essentially it was voted in by the Fulton County Commission as head of the election board here. Do we, do we see, Brad Raffensperger no longer has control over what happens to local election uh, commissions. We understand that. Election boards. Nevertheless, the question is whether Republicans use this as an opportunity, the Woolard uh, appointment, to in fact take over the Fulton County Election Board. So, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't want to speculate about that. I think that Woolard is an interesting choice for the board because, yeah, she's a Democrat, but I mean, what did you expect to come from the Fulton County Election Board? She's also mm-hmm. a reformer and highly respected. She's not anybody who puts up with incompetence and corruption at all. So in many ways, I actually think that that's a really good choice um, for uh, this election board, um, especially if you're going to make charges that it has been run poorly and that its leadership has been incompetent. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show when we come back a little bit more uh, with our remaining time on Political Rewind. (laughs) 
I want to do a quick update uh, before we continue with the panel on a show we did the other day. You may have been listening when Carlos Del Rio uh, was on the show to talk about where we stand with the COVID crisis in Georgia. We talked about monoclonal antibodies and the fact that the Biden administration was thinking about starting to, in some ways, ration them because they've been overused in some areas and are are out and people are out of supply in other parts of the country. I got an email this morning from a physician in South Georgia who heard that show and is terribly concerned because he says just in the last two days, infusion centers that administer monoclonal antibodies, which they've been using down in the Valdosta, Colquitt, and Moultrie regional uh, uh, health areas, have had to close because of lack of supply. Um, That's something we can talk about on the show going forward, but I just wanted to update you because there were some questions the other day about whether or not monoclonal antibodies were in fact still uh, plentiful in Georgia, and at least in that part of South Georgia, they're not. Okay. Um, Andra, the very open-ended question, what do you think of the AJC's poll on uh, the mayoral race? And, and let me point you in a direction. With less than two months to go, more than 40% of voters really don't have the slightest clue, apparently, of who they're going to vote for. Why? What does that tell us? So I, I'm not surprised. So, you know, people will start to really pay attention after uh, at, after Labor Day. And so even though we're after Labor Day, I think we're still a little too close to Labor Day and people still kind of have a bit of their mm-hmm. summer haze on. So, you know, the next time the AJC and UGA run the survey, I think people will have, uh, you know, we'll see fewer undecided. Also, there's a lot of people in the race, and so people are really confused. And I think, you know, if, if there's bad news for anybody in, in, in that survey, it's for Kasim Reed. Um, I, I can't say that I'm surprised by that, right? He left on a really bad note. He's highly controversial. Um, and so despite the fact that there might be some people who feel comfortable knowing what he was like as mayor, they don't want the confidence mixed with the controversy, mixed with, you know, the arrogance, mixed with the specter of corruption that he says is over, but that I haven't heard anything from the Justice Department to suggest that that investigation is, in fact, over. So, um, you know, this probably does not bode well for for Kasim Reed in terms of he, given his name ID, should probably be polling higher than he is. And the fact that he's not is saying something. Yeah, Alan, I should uh, m- make sure that voters, uh, that listeners uh, know that the poll showed basically Felicia Moore, city council president, Kasim Reed, in a statistical dead heat in the race. But it's Kasim right. Reed whose negatives are very high. And it's also right. Kasim Reed who poll- people who were polled say most of them have already made up their minds about whether they're not going to vote for Kasim Reed, Alan. Right. That's right. So I think Andre's exactly right. I think that the the, the big takeaway from, from this poll is that uh, Kasim Reed, despite his nearly universal name recognition, the fact that he's a form he was mayor for eight years, um, has is a, a, a approval rating or a favorability ratings that are upside down. His unfavorables are higher than his favorables. He's only polling at 24 percent, um, which is a really bad sign. Uh, for someone who's a former incumbent, um, and, and so I, 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 you know, and, and he's also been, you know, advertising a fair amount as as well. So I think it was a bad result for him. I think it was also a bad result maybe for Sharon Gay because she's been spending a lot of money, uh, and she's only at six percent in in the poll, which yeah. suggests that, you know, all this money that she's spending may not actually get her into into a runoff. Um, so you know, we're pretty sure there's going to be a runoff that you know. The assumption has been that Kasim Reed will be in the runoff uh, against most likely Felicia Moore, but, you know, it could be someone else. Um, I'm not even that sure about Kasim Reed making it into the runoff. I mean, we'll see. Um, That's a really interesting observation. Oh, that's surprising. Fred, I know given your position on the board of Invest Atlanta, you probably have to be a little (laughs) bit cautious about how you talk about the mayor's race. But nevertheless, um, if you don't mind... When you see that all of the can first of all, you're welcome to comment in any way you want to. But mm-hmm. when you see the fact that crime has essentially become, if not the only issue, w- one of the only things the candidates are talking about, and you combine that with the Buckhead uh, cityhood issue, uh, how worried are you in terms of the work you do at Invest Atlanta about your ability 
uh, the board's ability to attract businesses to the city? And, and how much will the mayor's race play into that? Yeah, so I am uh, I'm absolutely neutral in every municipal race, <laughs> every council race, mm-hmm. and the mayor's race. Um, but but, but as, a, as a political prognosticator, I will predict that Felicia Moore is going to be in the runoff. Uh, and that's as far as I've gotten, because um, mm-hmm. it, it polls, um, when, when you go back four years ago and you look at polls, Kathy Willard was polling at, at 6% at this particular uh, juncture, and she ultimately hit 17%, um, such that at different points in the night, it looked like she might be uh, in uh, in a runoff. So um, so when there are this many candidates and their message, messages are very similar, um, it's, it, it's early. Um, uh, but, I, but, I, but I do think that um, based on the, um, the AJC poll and also based on polling that some of the candidates have been willing to publicly release um, that Felicia Moore is going to be uh, in a runoff. Um, but but you, you talked about the Buckhead uh, issue. I've, I've talked about this before. Um, I think that Buckhead secession is an existential threat to the region and potentially to the state. Um, and I think that when, on, when it comes to questions of public safety, um, it, is, uh, it will present a more fundamental crisis if Buckhead leaves, if 40% of the city's tax base leaves, that's 40% less dollars for our schools, for our recreation centers, and for policing. Um, and that problem won't just remain in Atlanta. It will extend outward. Fred Smith, I got to give you the last word because we're really out of time for today's show. We're going to talk a lot more about Buckhead cityhood in in shows in the weeks ahead. But I will point out, it's interesting, this is another challenge Republicans in the legislature are going to face. The AJC poll suggested the majority of people who were uh, surveyed oppose Buckhead cityhood. So once again, Republicans are going to have to face this question of how voters will react to the way they vote on a referendum for Buckhead cityhood. Um Fred Smith, Andre Gillespie, Ellen Abramowitz, I said at the start of the show I was lucky to have a ringside seat for a really smart conversation. That's exactly what you gave to all of our listeners, and I'm very grateful to you all today for being on the show. I hope everybody out there has a great weekend. Let me thank Sam Burmis-Dawes and Sarah Callis, who has stepped in to help Sam run this show uh, with uh, Amelia Brock having moved on. And we appreciate both of you and you, Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer. Everybody have a great weekend. Take care, stay healthy. And as everybody on this panel keeps saying over and over again, get a vaccine. It will save lives and wear your mask indoors. See you all on Monday.